mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Wherever you are in the world, I'm Russell Tovey. I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Robert? I'm feeling really like a New Yorker. Do you? Do you? Yes. What's made you feel like that? Well, it's really funny because I was here in December and um, I came over here and I actually got really sick just as I was leaving. Yeah. As you know, guess what happened? Oh, I can't remember. Does any of our <laughs> listeners remember what happened? I ended up with meningitis. Oh my God. Um, yeah, so I was in hospital. You didn't. You didn't tell me when that. When I got back to London. Yeah. But when I was here, I was feeling really out of it. And I felt like it was just before Christmas mm. and everyone in the shops were, were really quite aggressive. And I don't know if it's because I was sick. You know, when you're sick, sometimes you, you're super sensitive. So even if someone's not being aggressive, you'd think they are or I something. you're super sensitive most of the time. I am a super sensitive human being. You are. What can I say? I know. Um, anyway, so I, I felt a bit sort of alienated when I was here last time. God. And then when I got home, I was obviously really sick. And no, 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 that's yeah, probably yeah. why know, I was feeling know, that know, way. Know, it wasn't really New York's fault. But I think I blamed it on New York oh. on that trip. And then coming back here this week has like healed me. And it's made me feel really like I'm a New Yorker again. And I love it here. And everyone's been really friendly and lovely. And I've just had the best time ever, Russ. So thank you for this You're welcome, Rob. Days. I'm pleased that I gave you that. And today we are meeting someone that is very inspiring to both of us. Yes. She has an incredible gallery. Yes. And for the past sort of five, six years has been showing some of the artists that I think you and I really, really love. Yeah. And um, it's a great privilege to have her with us today. Um, we would like to welcome... Jasmine, Jasmine Sue. Hello. Thank you. I just want to say to the listeners out there, you guys don't rehearse that at all. We went from a very mellow conversation just right <laughs> into like yep. an amp we, we, we were slagging everyone off. And then <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> and now we've come into uh, a professional chat. Yes. I have a friend that likes those audio texts and I have to like rehearse them at least like six and seven times just to feel... You know, to send out in the world. Yeah, and I just feel like you guys are really good at this. What, what, what's an audio text? When you send a voice note. You know, it's like... On text messages. Like on WeChat or oh, something. Oh, yeah. Like, hey, what's Hey, how's it... Ugh, that doesn't feel right. Then you like, kind of go back <laughs> and you're like, hey, let's... Like, I just feel very uncomfortable I would do that audio. if I was like, like trying to impress someone like date-wise. I'd probably be like, right, <laughs> yeah, I like say, how do I sound better for this? But if it's just like... like a childhood friend. friend. Yeah, yeah, you've known for 30 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah like, no, ooh. it's... It's like I have problems with audio. Do you, do you, does that bleed over into your gallery? Because you have a gallery called JTT Gallery. I JTT. <laughs> Which you started in 2012. That's correct. In yeah. the Lower East Side. That's right. And it was a small space. And I came to your gallery. Uh, you invited me, actually, to see the Glenn Fogel show. Oh, that's right. Because yeah. uh, Glenn Fogel based uh, a show around his... A weekend relationship with Andrew Haig, who right. wrote and directed Looking, the TV show that I did, and he wrote and directed the movie Weekend, right. which Glenn Fogel was heavily inspired by because he thought he influenced a lot of the weekend. Right, and I must right. just say, I love that movie. It's so I thought good. that movie was so sensual yeah. and so like brilliant at the way it kind of showed love. And it didn't matter about, well, about it being brush, a gay love story. It was just, that, yeah. yeah, but also it, even though it was, you know, specific to this idea of a two, two men and it was a gay love story, mm -hmm. I felt it somehow transcended that and became much more about the human thing of like falling in love somehow, even if it is a fleeting thing or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But I, I really was touched by that film. I think the script in it was just so beautifully written. Mm. And I think that was something that Glenn, with his piece, wanted to highlight, was he sort of excerpt, he, he pulled excerpts of the script. And so there was one moment where he's talking about, you know, he's pretending, he says, why don't I pretend to be your dad? Because the um, one of the characters never got a chance to come out to his father. And I think that that's something that anybody can, I mean, on the one hand, not everybody can relate to how painful it is to come out to your parents. And I think that that movie highlights that. But it was also very touching because anybody can relate to having wanting to impress your parents or 
um, or let, make or your like parents let them proud. down. Or let them down. Yeah. So it had it, the script was very good at walking that line. Yeah, and Glenn and the Glenn show was great, and it was a, a video work and. Yeah, exactly. And he um, sort of I, like isolated some of that script by playing slowed down karaoke versions of pop songs. So he would play like karaoke Beyonce or and I think that there's something really beautiful about um, actually um, Will Simmons is writing a text on Glenn. And he makes this really beautiful point that the over saccharine or sentimental is something that can be sort of reserved for um Gaze because it's like something that's just sort of this like this intense longing of something that you can't have as something that relates a lot to. Um, I'm I'm not going to do a good job for articulating this. But, but we can we can read these. Yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 yeah. Well, well, yeah, if I had this pulled up, I could quote it much better. Yeah yeah. yeah. But there's just. But was that one of the first uh, shows you had in your space? Actually, it wasn't. I think, if I remember correctly, that was maybe 2014 or 2015. Right. And um, the show, that was about three years into the space. And how did you get the space? Was you working with the gallery before that? I worked for Macaron first. Ah, right. I didn't know that. Yeah, um, from about 2007 to 2009, I think. Cool. Um, and then I, I worked at Kimmerich Gallery, mm-hmm. um, which isn't here anymore, but had a space in Tribeca. And so it's kind of funny, I was doing a lot of looking at spaces down there, which I think now is becoming a little bit more of a spot. Right. It's really beautiful and gorgeous spaces in that yeah, area. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and I actually worked a little bit for Karma, Brendan. Oh, oh cool. Did. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit, just because Brendan was being very nice to me and helping Aww. me out <laughs> by giving me a job. Um, and then I was able to kind of, like, make starting the gallery work that time. I, um, yeah, I sort of lucked out by a series of events that I didn't really plan, like uh-huh. just sort of meeting certain people and being in touch with somebody who was like, oh, I've got this space and I'm sort of using it for storage and it's $2,000 a month. And Really? Wow. Yeah. So. And did you always want to be a gallerist and have your own gallery? I did. I, well, there's a couple of things. I thought I was going to be like a video artist at some point. It was really mm. funny. I thought I would. Did you study to... as an artist? I did. Yeah. Where did you go? Uh, NYU. Oh, cool. Um, I was kind of interested in being a curator, but I'm not, I don't fit that archetypical role of being like that type of intellectual, I think, in a lot of ways. And I, I'm very, like, you know, of, of all my friends, I was just able to kind of bullshit and like run the numbers a little bit better, I think. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of got into this role. What was, what was the pressures of setting up a gallery back then? Um, it's always money and it still yes. is money. Is, money. <laughs> is that a constant thing that you have to consider? Yeah, I think. We wake up in the morning, we go to bed at night. So, really? I mean, I don't know, maybe not for everybody, but I think yeah. um, I think in New York, if you're trying to do ambitious shows, you have to run, like, you know, you have this pressure of, like, hitting a number of sales, you know, even just on a weekly basis. And, um, you know, and also for your artists, I think everybody that, I have, I have a lot of artists that live in New York, almost all my artists do, and there's a lot of pressure for artists to have a lot of cash to just maintain... Um, studios. Just maintain studios. Materials. Even the rents yeah. are just so high now as well. I, I've I noticed this week, even just, like, buying stuff here, you know, for food and well, drink We just had breakfast, we had an omelette, so two coffees, yeah. and it was, like, $80. We were like, what? <laughs> well, the only nice thing about it is you can, like, go to a place like London, which is traditionally very expensive, and you can be like, wow, a cocktail's a 12 pounds, nothing. <laughs> Let's get the 10. <laughs> um, yeah, and we went to one of your artist studios yesterday, um, Jamie and Giuliani Villani. Giuliano. Giuliano. Gili- I always say it wrong. I always say it's Villani. Fine. Yeah. I don't know why I do that. A lot of people actually call me Jamie and or oh, really? say that they're really interested in a jasmine painting. And I'm like, that's oh. great. I like that word for you. <laughs> you like, sure, you can have one of my paintings. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and we went to her new studio, which was huge and really impressive and so great for her because it feels like she's got so much space now to be free and just create all of her her works. Yeah. But yeah, I, she's yeah, got just... a great studio. I mean, and that was a big decision for her to make and to do that. And it's hard, but I think the biggest thing was just being able to look at a few paintings at once. And mm. just things like that are hard to do in, mm. in New York. Um, you set out to represent your peers, emerging peers. I think you've been quoted as saying it's a scary and intimidating world oh, for yeah. emerging artists in New yeah. York. Do you yeah. think that's still the case? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was actually recently on a um, panel where... Um, somebody was being very generous and saying that the role of the dealer was to go out and see a lot of different studios and that that is um, 
a reason why you should support dealers. And I've been thinking a lot about that as like why a collector would want to work and collaborate with a dealer as opposed to working with artists directly. I mean, you have a relationship with Jamie and, and a lot of collectors have opportunities to support um, artists directly. But my role and my labor is so much more about spending multiple, doing multiple studio visits with the artists that I work with. And I, I very rarely actually do studio visits with artists I don't work with. Mm-hmm. And that might be partially just because that's how my business is. It's, it's focused on my peers and mm-hmm. people I already work with. And mm-hmm. What's not- your taste in... Um- people you represent do you think can you look very at your handsome oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they have to be attractive it's incredibly attractive <laughs> it's not about um, the work it's just what, they, what they look like <laughs> what their 10 by 8 looks like yeah i think that in the same way that when a collector collects it starts out as being biographical something that they care about or i think that um great collections start that way mm. i've realized that my program is very biographical. It reflects a lot of the people that I was interested, like that I was friends with, that were um, building content that I felt passionate about in mm-hmm. different periods of my life, and those are also friends of mine that I feel like we've like, um, you know, fa- found this like common interest together. Yeah. But you, c- there are like aesthetic things that I think also fall into line with that too. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, things I've been interested in have changed over the years a lot, and. I also think it's important to stick to some of the things you cared about earlier on and, you know, be committed to them and watch them grow. Mm. So, do, so you look back at what you used to do and feel like you've, you've the kind of programs changed? Well, like uh, maybe a good example of that would be Becky Colesrud, who's yeah. an artist that I've known since I was 17. And she's also one of my good friends. And I know what she made in undergrad and I can cite paintings that she made in undergrad. You know, I have paintings of from undergrad in her house right now. Um, and you can look at her first show with us, which was, I think, only the second show of the gallery, or maybe the third. Oh, right. Because um, I saw a show about three years ago, you had the paintings exactly. in The Women in the Water. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Um, so that was actually our third show together. Oh, right. And so if you really put her work side by side, you can see how much it's changed. But it's also within a, a um, you know, she's always painted women or androgynous figures. So it's also kind of within a, a, a small breadth, but she has so much complexity in it and so it's just interesting to be committed to something for a long time in terms of her career I love that and I think that's such an interesting thing to think about is like the role of the dealer and the well, role you two of, are dealers aren't you yeah exactly you have a dealer and also we're kind of similar in the sense that we work with more emerging or mid-career artists we're not working necessarily with like the kind of stellar superstar artists like you know the bigger dealers do and I think it's for me I love the conversation you can have over many many years and it's sometimes I describe myself because I'm a bit like this anyway as a cheerleader just because of my kind of like enthusiasm and hyper kind of energy but I the thing I, I I love most about being a gallerist is that you can phone the artist up and like for example I've got an artist called Tilo Heinzman and we have a really close relationship over the phone where I call him all the time even though he's in Berlin and we talk things through and it might not even necessarily just be the art but we have this kind of ongoing which is a friendship in a way but it's it's not like other friendships it's a very unique dynamic but don't people call it like a marriage in your nurturing like a relationship even though it's obviously non-sexual I mean sometimes it might be sexual but (laughs) it's mostly non-sexual but it is it is a companionship with these artists yeah I think it can be um, in the same way that you have to keep uh, make sure that both parties feel like they're constantly still engaged in each other, which I think is like the trick about long-term relationships that are, you know, it's like you have to make sure that both parties are still really passionate as we were when we first started. Otherwise, it just stops working. And I think yeah, that definitely. that's something that is important for, um, you could say mid-career galleries, but I feel like for me definitely, like as a small gallery, I mm. think it's important for the, owner of the company, like whoever it is, the name on the door, to be able to cite very small details about the work that's being made in studios. And once you lose that, I do think it's a bit hard to like kind of remember why we were all here, which is the the art, Um, Mm. you know, something that we cared about, which is why we all started this business, you know, got involved in this industry. Yeah, totally. Do you um, look for more artists constantly? You always like seeing shows and think, oh, that's interesting or... Um, I think that the gallery probably could take on like one more artist every year, every two years. But mm-hmm. I think that's a, like the most that the, like my gallery could do without just 
having a total meltdown (laughs) because of just being good about being in touch with everybody as much as we can and and being on top of everything as much as we can. Um, I do know that some galleries tend to neglect some of the things that they're already working on to kind of try and take on new things. And and sometimes you have to do that in order to grow. Um, But we do try our best to be committed to things that we've already committed to. How many people are part of your team? like the the staff wise, yeah. we have it's me and I have a director, and then we have a gallery assistant, so that's three total. Right, right, right. And then we have a part time art handlers. Cool. And have you always been in the same space? This is my second space. It's your second space. And how was it? So your first space. Can you talk a bit about that? And what, yeah, you know? I was mostly on my alone in that space. Um, Marie, my director, started working there about maybe like a year before we left, which was pretty tight quarters. The bathroom was basically like like the door of the bathroom basically hit the desk that you're <laughs> working on, which is just not exact, like, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, You'll know what each other's yeah, doing the whole time. God yeah. bless Marie Catalano, not the last time <laughs> I'm going to say that. But um, it, was, it was nice in the one sense that the community really felt a part of that space. They would come in and out a lot. Um, I remember when Sandy happened like a lot of kids were out of school and the kids would come out and hang in the space a lot so you didn't get flooded there no we were weirdly the street that i was on was a block away from three feet of water wow uh so i lucked because layman morpin down the road that got completely Mm -hmm. so many galleries lost all because a lot of galleries had um uh like uh, paper works and things mm-hmm. like that stored in kind of planches in, in the basements yeah. and all those works got destroyed I mean there was so much art lost in mm. that yeah. yeah 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 um, yeah so I think that the second floor is a little bit different you know you don't get people coming in unless this is the new space yeah, yeah. I mean sometimes during events or openings people kind of walk in off the street um, so but that's about it yeah when did you it's feel like you kind of arrived. When was your moment in the gallery? Because I remember you had an Earth's Fisher show. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know. You still don't feel it. Still a, still a work in progress. I actually felt, I mean, this is the first time we'd had artists in the Whitney Biennial. That was a pretty big moment. Yeah, so who have you me. got in this year? You've got... Um, we have Diane Simpson. Which we loved. Had, we love. We saw, so that's the, I don't know if it's called the project room, but the small room at the front where Jamie yeah. had was in a, exactly. a, a group show there. Mm-hmm. And, and also that's the room we saw Toyin. Um, o- from Jack Shane. Yeah, 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 that's right. It's an amazing space, and mm-hmm. that's the only one that's free. You don't have to have a ticket to go mm-hmm. into the Whitney, so it's yeah. it's really accessible. More people probably see that than they do anything else. But I that show is great. Simpson. But your oh. your influence on your showing her because she hadn't been seen anywhere since 1980 has now led on to the ICA Boston doing a retrospective. That's right, and yeah. that's kind of by proxy because oh, of you, you, right? Remember this? So <laughs> there's literally there's no notes for any of us, like listeners. There's no notes in front of Russell right now. We're just geeks. It's all, we, all we do is think and talk about art, so it's like it's in our brains. But that's right. That's because so of funny. you, right? I mean, well, it's because Corbett, of her, but it's Cor- because of you. At that time, Corbett um, versus Dempsey, which was her primary gallery, and I had like a really great sort of team going on because I think um, they were just, they had the resources that starting, like just starting out, I didn't have to really properly catalog everything and really take care of Diane. They're, they're based in Chicago, Diane's in Wilmette. Mm-hmm. And I was able to just kind of be, um, you know, the scrappy dealer, just kind of show, introducing it a lot to some curators here in New York. But it was a really nice um, collaboration, I feel like, and they placed her work with a lot of great Had you seen her work Chicago. for a long time? I'm sorry? Was you aware of her work? Like um, Matthew Higgs introduced me to the work because oh, wow. B. Wirtz put her work into a show at White Columns because Diane registered one of her pieces at like the register, the White Columns registry, and B. Wirtz like picked it out of the registry. And like the, it was pretty amazing. What's the White Columns registry? Um, I think you can, as an artist, like submit artwork to your registry at White Columns. And so it's like an archive? Um, it's more like an opportunity for like Matthew to see the work or other curators and things like that. Right. And well, he must get a lot of that, right? I think so. And I don't know if everybody makes it into the registry. I'm not the authority on the subject. Okay. But I, I mean, wasn't aware of that. that. That sounds great. Yeah. And so it's I like mean, kind of t- turning up with your like portfolio and going, hey, here's my work. And he goes, all right, well, you can be in the registry. You can't. Like, <laughs> I don't really know. I don't, oh, know. I don't know. We don't want to get this factually incorrect. But yeah. I will say something. I think Matthew Higgs is such an amazing human being. Oh, and my yeah. God. I love... Um, 
his enthusiasm and he's very calm about it in a way he's just sort of this kind of great mind but I know that he's had a big impact on a lot of galleries all over the world a lot of outsider artists um, and even I show Billy Childish and Matthew is one of the people that helped Billy sort yeah. of get accepted in the art world yeah. when he was seen as a kind of outsider himself right. so I, I love him and we went to White Columns um, two days ago and saw the current um, benefit and yeah, the benefit auction. I just love a lot of what he does and I think he's a He's a great auctioneer too. Is he? <laughs> did you go to the, have you got any artists in the benefit? Um, that happened last night. We had Becky Colesrud. Yeah. Yes. How did he do? Um, I think he did well. Great. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. He's um, he's great. I think. Well, he also introduced me to Marlon Mullen, who's also in the Whitney Biennial. Who we love as well. Yeah, exactly. And he two just of the won the award. We loved most he just won show. the SEPA award at uh, SF MoMA, right? Uh, yes, Seca. 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 I think. Right. S E C A. Yeah. He and he's an incredible artist. Yeah. He, has, he hasn't spoken all of his life, has he? Well, yeah. He's a uh, he communicates non-verbally. It's like yeah. Do you are you able to communicate with him? Do you ever? Yeah, we have a little rapport. You know, we usually show like he's he's really fashionable, so he kind of like show up and we'll sort of point to a certain garment of clothing we're very proud of. Um, nice. And he's really, um, he's very patient, so he'll really look at an image for a long time and, and sit with you with it. He actually came out for the biennial, and it was really great. I got to introduce him to all the artists. And where is Marlon based? In Richmond, California, just, okay. yeah, just north of San Francisco. So I first saw Marlon's work through Russell. He actually WhatsApped me some works oh, and was yeah. like... I know, I nearly you... bought one. I didn't get one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the... he sent me them and was like, he was, he was like, make, you know, looking at lots of different things. And I loved it immediately. And he does these incredible paintings. They're acrylic on canvas of like front covers, almost like a bit abstracted sometimes. Of art, of art magazines. But of, of art magazines. Art in America. There's an interesting thing about Marlon that I've been thinking about a little bit more recently, which is that... Um, when I work with an artist like Jamie and she edits a lot of her work. I mean, you'll see on Instagram, she'll post a lot of paintings and a lot of those don't become final works um, because she's very, you know, careful about what leaves a studio and what she considers to be really good and strong. We saw that yesterday. Yeah. I mean, we saw a few paintings we really liked and she mm-hmm. was like, no, 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 yeah, no, no. Yeah. These are not that ever happening. Right. Yeah, that bullshit. is awful. Yeah. I was going to yeah. call my show that, but I'm not anymore. You know, she's very particular yeah. and when we said about like how do you feel when they leave and go to collections she's like I'm fine because I approved them you know right. and I love that direct kind yeah. of you know decision making yeah. it's great it's interesting with Marlon because the editing process is a little bit different we mostly um you know we leave paintings kind of around and close in proximity to him and we kind of have this intuition for when he feels like really good about certain works and it's an interesting process and sometimes he takes works that have been out and I mean when I say we I'm not actually physically there we have we work with this um great guy Tim Buckwalter who works with Nyad I mean um and Marlon directly Um, what's Nyad? Nyad is the art center that um Marlon works with he's there three days out of the week painting and sometimes he goes in and doesn't paint. Sometimes he goes in and he's really prolific. Sometimes he pulls paintings out from the racks and, like, touches them up. And it's just an interesting process of, like, you know, we kind of mostly just keep everything to make sure that we're not, you know, everything is being taken care of and deciding what to show and things like that. It's more of a curatorial process, yeah. I guess. Is, is he aware that, that he's in, like, the Bernie? Or is he, this all yeah, makes was, sense to him? he came to the opening. It was amazing. The um, three paintings there are superb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. They re- and that, just to explain, it's not only that he's nonverbal, he's um, autistic and has expressive aphasia, just for those that... Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, he's autism spectrum disorder is what they say. So. I thought the paintings really stood out in the biennial and there's some, I'd never seen them in real life. It was the first time for me and I love the texture of it all mm-hmm. and the kind of, they're, they're way more complex than they appeared in photographs mm. and they really spoke to me actually and they were one of my highlights. Um, I, I just loved them, yeah. Yeah, he's very good with colour. He matches colour very well. He So what Marlon does, just to explain his process, is he works in acrylic and he paints from found imagery from the library at Nyad, which is mostly art magazines and publications. He used to do a lot of advertisements and interior spreads and things, but now he's been focusing mostly on the covers of publications for the past two or three years. Mm. And it's just really interesting to see what he focuses on, what he highlights in the imagery, for especially for somebody who um, has autism spectrum disorder because one out of four people that are autistic are nonverbal, so and also I feel like um, autism can really only best be defined by those that are autistic. So you, it's a really tricky way to fully understand it. Everybody who is autistic is different from anybody who is like the next person who might have it. It's just different traits to it. So 
it's just interesting in terms of not only for art history, but also just from under, like having empathy with somebody and understanding what you know what they're seeing, what they're focusing on, what they fo- you know how their brain works. And totally. Wow. Well, what does it feel like to have two artists in the Whitney Biennial? Feels great. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Can we actually talk about Diane's work as well? Because it was the first time I'd seen a whole you know room of, of her work, and um, she's now showing in London with Herald Street, isn't she? Was Correct, that before yeah. or after you? Uh, after. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I really responded to it on a kind of like armor level or something. There was and, and sort of a clothing samurai, lots of samurai. Yeah, and, but also like a clothing pattern, you know, pattern making or something when you're making right. clothes. Yeah. And and also I was thinking weirdly of people like Barbara Caston, like the photographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and totally. the, the minute I walked in, I thought of kind you of like that, Art yeah. Deco and like twenties influence and. Um, and I, I just really responded to it. Like and, flappers and stuff, and yeah. And, and like architectural details as well, and things like that. But well, also, like, kind of the way that Barbara stages a set. And I think that the curators were really smart in making a sort of proscenium for Diane right. for multiple pieces, mm-hmm. which, um, truthfully, the galleries just don't always have the resources to make these, like, beautiful walls and things like this, or also like, the room and space. And it was just the way that the museum did it and took it to that degree. Because Diane's made a few pieces that um, were made to be in store windows, and the Whitney sort of mimicked the store window just without Uh, the glass. So that's kind of theatrical. Do you know what's really interesting? Now you say that, it all makes total sense, but I I was just looking at the work, but that means, and I loved it. window dressing So that that is actually a really successful installation because the way they did it, it didn't take away from the work, it just enhanced the work. If you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, all I was doing was looking at her art. I wasn't thinking about how it was installed at all. Right. But now you say it, the experience of walking through that room probably was really sort of staged in a way, but yeah. really elegantly. Yeah. 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 We did a show years ago in Carl's first gallery. It was a much smaller gallery with Barbara Caston of her Polaroids um, and then some of her more recent, I think, 2011, like, larger photographs. And then also with an artist um, who's based in Germany called Alexandra Le Kauf, and she was looking at the interiors of cinemas, and she often made, like, papier-mâché kind of, uh, like, sculptural wall hangings that looked like... Um, sort of old cinema, the shapes from old cinemas. And I was also thinking about that show specifically when I was in there. So it was really nice to discover her. And I think that's so great about the Whitney Biennial is that even people like us who are constantly looking at art, you can go there and you don't know everything yet. And I, I, I loved it. I felt like I really took took that away. And you, you can listen to talk art and discover. Exactly. <laughs> discover more. So There's what... also a really sweet audio of Diane talking about her work, which I like love. And oh, we didn't hear that. Had, is yeah. that on your website? You can actually see it on the Whitney's website. Right, okay. right, right. Um, oh yeah, they got all the artists to do certain yeah, videos, didn't they? Yeah, I'm so check them out. It's Diane's is amazing. Um, I love listening to her talk about her work, and we're actually doing. So Diane, when you talk about the figure and architecture, um, her and I have actually gotten a few arguments about this because I always think of Diane as a post-imagist because she was based in Chicago. She, um, you know, she made a lot of work just right after a lot of these paintings. She showed it with Phyllis Kime, which was a really big gallery that supported a lot of imagist artists and. She kind of Did was she know the Chicago images? Yes, yeah, she knew them personally too. Right. I mean, not, you know, she had a family and she lived in Wilmette, so it was a little bit, she was a little bit separated from right. that social group. But she also knew the work very, very well. Um, and I think that the artist that she's most akin to is Christina Ramberg. Yes, love. Um, it, it turns out that a lot of their work was made from the same source material down to a very specific costume book. Really? From the 1800s. Yeah, the, like, where and the like, hair was and the clothes. Yeah. Wow. Chris, well, and that was independent of each other? Yeah, yeah. independent, yeah. Wow. So there was something in that environment that led them to um, very similar interest. And a part of it is that Chicago, or the Art Institute, was always devoted to self-taught material. A lot of the historians there were... And so was Jim Nutt and Ray, um, not, well, Ray Oshida was a teacher, but I was thinking of Joseph Yoakum, who was an artist there that a lot of, um, a lot of the students were looking at. And so it's kind of interesting. We're doing a show this summer with Margaret Wharton, who was another artist who was alongside Diane and making sculpture after a time when painting was, you know, really strong in Chicago. And it's really craft based. It's very much like she's looking at H.C. Westerman and, um, these pieces are from like 1991 to 2012, but some of her work in the late 70s and early 80s is really um, super incredible, all very well-crafted and um, made from a single chair. So she'll take a chair and she'd like slice it up and reconstruct it into these um, kind of anthropomorphic figures. 
Wow, that sounds great. Yeah. Can't wait to see that. See um, another artist that we have connected with over the years was Borna Samak, who, you, were you the first gallery to show him in New York? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you did his first ever I show. I was no? like, oh, yeah, I, was, I, I forced Borna into being um, a committed artist. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I think um, Borna and I actually, Borna actually, truth be told, forced me into opening a gallery. We would, like, spend a lot of time, you know, chatting with each other. Like, That's so cool. And I would just be like, one day we're not we're gonna leave these jobs, you know, Borna, <laughs> start your own thing. <laughs> and at one point he was like, you know, you just have to stop saying it because it's kind of a bummer to like listen to and you don't do anything about it. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> I went and started a gallery. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and how, so was he one of the first shows you had in this place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he was right after Bill Walton. I think he was my second show. And, and again, he's gone on. He's now with Sadie Coles. He's one of the. He's incredibly talented. I'm very lucky to have grown up with him. I think and. He always was making art, always, but a lot of internet-based stuff, yeah. you know? And that was kind of the time we were all, you know, in 2007, we were all, like, having desk jobs for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a lot of communicating to each other through <laughs> art made on um, blogs and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And um, another artist that I work with, Damon Zucconi, in the same way, there's a lot of things I was looking at that he was making a little bit later than Borna, but... Um, so it was an interesting community, and then to sort of translate some of those things that he was making digitally into objects was, like was an interesting process. I just about process. to say that, yeah, because yeah. his his work now, in my mind, even his like paintings as such, they're they're very sculptural somehow. Like there's 3D a kind of like printing. yeah, and you feel like you can really fall into them or something. Yeah. There's like they're they're deep somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I feel like the digital has informed his work. He's also from Paoli in Pennsylvania, where mm. there's an arts and crafts movement there that like um, Wharton Escherich, um, some of the, not that Borna would have seen that younger, he actually didn't see it until a little bit later, but. but like folk arty types. Kind of, but more like um, where architecture and furniture making meet like just insane, insanely beautiful, well-crafted objects. And just, I think actually kind of about, Wharton Escherich was like pretty amazing at making movement in a still object. Right. So like he has a lot of these things that kind of have almost like a Duchampian like, cascading sense to them and I think that that's probably if you could really summarize everything that Bourne is interested in movement is like a huge baseline for he really like being able to move the eye around a painting is very important um I see it as like I see his sculpt wall sculptures as like a William Morris kind of shaker-esque vibe but like brought up yeah, to, to now's generation yeah totally Totally. I think for me, it's always been quite, there's something quite cinematic about his work or something like the idea of it coming from the internet where things are often moving and you might have videos or things like that. Mm -hmm. I feel like even in, in his kind of, um, you know, paintings or, or that amazing sculpture of the, the kind of sofa that was like, mm. you know, the black and white sofa, yeah. there was something really like, um, kind of like Beetlejuice or something for it. For yes, me. it is. I don't know, but it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. but it's like, I don't know. I always, I always feel like you can exp you experience them in a very like active way somehow, and the the, the idea of movement and um, film or something in my mind is often what I'm thinking about when I'm looking at them. It's really strange. Yeah, totally. I, I'm always drawn to the autobiographical too, um, which I know some artists try and resist or like you know be evasive in some way. That's but, your taste when you find. Well, artist. I just find that's how I sort of understand objects or how they why they're important oh. is. Um, sort of how they affected somebody's life or how they became the product of somebody's life. Yeah. And that that couch is a remake of a couch that is in Borna's apartment. And I just, like, a lot you of... you sat on that couch? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just, I think a lot of what Borna makes are things that he's sort of staring at throughout his life. and right. Or... or um, as a kind of flaneur, like, sees in the streets. And, like, he's a lot of sign painting that he is, you know, mimicking in his own work and things like that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. 
every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Who's been the latest artist you've signed up? Is it Sable, Ellie Smith? Sable, yeah, and Dorian Gardner. She's going stratospheric now. Yeah, exactly, I know, yeah. So I think that there's a lot of urgent things she's talking about in her work. She's also an amazing poet. Um, So Sable is sort of interested at looking at the way that innocence and guilt kind of make their way into landscapes, in the American landscape, uh, specifically in the larger context of a carceral state. So we're going to be showing her work at Statements in Art Basel in like two weeks. Um, and we're, she's making this really large sculpture that um, takes uh, prison furniture, like remakes of prison furniture one-to-one and um, combines them, bolts them together into this large arch. And she's interested in trying to kind of show the relationship between that as a landscape and playgrounds um, and how playground like aesthetics and mm-hmm. that have wow. a similarity. And um, it turns out that um, playground equipment and prison furniture are in some cases made by the same manufacturer. Really? Oh, wow. And yeah, well, they're both like high use, need to be really durable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but that's something that I found kind of that's fascinating. That's a juxtaposition but... of freedom and enjoyment <laughs> and like play and then just yeah, institutionalized exactly. sadness. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was something that I was kind of fascinated by, almost from an economic standpoint, just how these sort of darker economies work um, beneath us. But I think that Sable, on top of that, was very interested in the way that imagination itself can be restricted, or um, especially, like, by children. She's in a series of works that reprint coloring books that are given to children who in any way are interacting with the, the justice system, specifically the court system, and these coloring books like go through and really define all the characters and roles that a child might interact with. And they're like, you know, the judge that's called Judge Friendly. She's like a really um, almost princess-like figure with this flowing robe and blonde hair. And um, it's just a kind of interesting book to um, look at and think about and how it might affect children. Wow. Do you like doing art fairs? You know... People talk a lot of shit on art fairs, and I do too, <laughs> because <laughs> they're really expensive and they're really stressful. But one thing I really love about art fairs is that they hold to one truth, which is why they exist, which is that you still need to see art in person to really understand it. Yeah. If you didn't need to see art in person, then the art fair would just crumble. And I think actually that the art fair helps people to stay honest by and not just buying things from JPEGs. Um, Definitely. Which Borna likes to tease me that my job is to just email JPEGs all the time. <laughs> I, I've actually appeared in one of your Basel pitches, haven't I, a couple of years ago? That's right. <laughs> yes. Russell was an extra, and um, he actually had a role. Yeah. In <laughs> I played Russell Toby, the collector. <laughs> in a short little biop about me. <laughs> where, where? You, were, you were amazing in that, Where can honestly. we see this? I think it's when you're... Well, no, it, was just, it just went out to Just Google me. It just comes Google, up. Yeah, Love pop this. up, yeah. Jasmine it's one of about Sue four images that come up when you Google my... Yeah, and, and you, so got, you got in. You, your pitch worked, didn't it? You got in that year, right? Yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, you're, you're welcome. And, <laughs> <laughs> and how do you feel about being uh, international now? Because I think being a gallery, you know, 30 years ago was often very specific to the location you were in. You know what I mean? Like if you were in East London, you were in East London. And yes, you might have had some international interaction, but I guess it wasn't as much as it is now. So now we've become this kind of, you know, a lot of my collectors, for example, are literally all over the world. And I often get to fly out and meet these people. That you, you know, it's just totally incredible. So how do you feel about like, how much are you traveling and then how much do you try and stay in New York? Well, I would say that we are mostly based... We are... Our collectors are mostly based in New York and L.A. Right. Um, and then with Basel, we definitely have some collectors in Germany, which is great, and, um, you know, and around Europe, too, um, London, things like that. Um, I try to let other dealers that we collaborate with in Europe to try and focus on those areas, but it's also amazing when we get um, collectors and supporters there. Um, I, I've been doing Art Basel Hong Kong for the last two years, and I like that as a reminder that, there are just there's just so much to the world too outside of America and Europe mm. and um, what's your heritage? Where's your surname from? Um, my father was born in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, his parents were born in mainland China. Um, yeah. And you were you were brought up in America though. I was yeah I was born in America. 
Because yeah. we were saying earlier that your surname is Zoo back Oh, uh, well, I mean, to those that speak Chinese, like, close your ears because I have horrible pronunciation. <laughs> but it's actually Zou. Zou. Yeah. But we say Sue. Here. Well, we say Sue. It's just easier. I prefer it's cute, Sue. Though, right? It's like what my whole family decided to do together. You oh, really? know, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, that's, that's cool. our preferred colonial name, colonized name. <laughs> Hong Kong and China, it's so interesting how that's growing so fast and the they're very like open and there seems like a real youthful kind of joy to contemporary art where they're still kind of it's still being discovered and supported and and I find that really exciting yeah well it's almost like you can't step in the same river twice every time I go back to China I mean Hong Kong's so different from mainland and then all the cities are so different the people that I meet there change and grow so much I think that um, there's a real dedication to learning and to reading about the work. And just there's a, I think there's a lot more, there's a higher volume of intake, I think, in Asia. Like they can take in a lot more information, I find, on a wider spectrum. And so it's interesting. I always was, edu- in terms of the collectors that I sell to here in New York, I always feel like they're constantly educating me on artists in the 80s and 90s that, look like what I'm showing now. And I mm. love listening to them tell me about that. Mm. And I feel like when you go to Asia, it's a little bit more like learning about a lot of other contemporary artists actually that are making work similar to what we're doing. We're just kind of, it's just a different type of um, information sharing or something, but. That's great. Will you be in London for Jamie's show? I'll come I'm going to be in London for Jamie's show. So we can hang out in London, surely. When I'm going to be in London for Born. I was about to say, I thought oh, Born, Born is at the same time, thing. isn't it? Yeah. Time, That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. And, we're and they're doing, like best friends, aren't they? Yeah, they're best friends. And we're doing a two-person show with uh, Issy Wood this summer. And she's oh, got yeah. a solo show at the Goldsmiths. So we're just going to be in London oh my God. for all of June. We really oh like Issy. God. We've been hanging out a lot with her in London. Yeah, she's amazing. She's awesome. Yeah. I've not met Issy. I've not been hanging oh, out with her. Oh, I have. I had, <laughs> what, 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 <laughs> weird. Why have I not hung out with Issy? I, don't I know. like Issy Wood. Guys, but I was at dinner with her. With Where were you? Sadie Coles had a dinner and I sat next to her. And then I went to Carlos and Shakara and we sat next to her. And then I had dinner with her. Where was I? You obviously were too busy being an actor. I want to be friends with Issy Wood. Aww. <laughs> she actually really happen. likes the podcast. She listened to it. Oh, she good. wants to come on. I, I love get her. her on. So you, you were talking about Christina Ramberg well. earlier, and then you're saying about art, like collectors influencing you about the artists in the 80s. So that was her. And then I look at artists now like Julie Curtis, who's mm-hmm. incredibly influenced by her. Mm-hmm. That's exciting to me. But if you didn't know Christina Ramberg's work, would you... Do you need to that? Do you, like I don't know why I'm asking about another artist, but another gallery. But do you feel like you need that that reference hinders or helps or when it's that close? Actually, you know, to it? I I don't feel it's fair for me to speak about Julie Curtis's work because yeah. I don't actually know it well enough. Right. But um, I think that it's really important in general for us to know our histories. I think let's just talk about Jamie because yep. I I know her more and I can speak more to her. It's just Jamie incites a lot of history within her work. And sometimes she can be really insistent about not sort of giving the hints as to where it's coming from. And I think that's because Jamian's really interested in memory and cultural memory and, and what gets remembered and what doesn't get remembered. And that's something that I talk with her a lot about. Um, but I think that it's important to also be responsible for sort of knowing where your sources come from. So oh. that's something that I think every artist has to kind of decide how much they're going to reveal and how much they're going to keep and I don't know it's it changes a lot for every artist Mm -hmm. but um you know for example Issy Wood I think points a lot to Dominique Noli, but she will sort of say that and show you that and then when you kind of see it I think it's I think it opens the work up to right I don't know the artist but who is it again Dominique Noli. he's a Italian painter and and they're small like they're not necessarily small but they're very close up actually even though he was based in Italy could be paired very well with Christina Ramberg, for example, right. like sort of cl- like how the hair kind of gets balls and stuff. Yeah, yeah sort of, um, you know, separated from the body and becomes its own thing. Mm-hmm. But the the importance, if you're going to cite that, is to be able to fold in why it's relevant now, why it's important now, or specific to you. And I think Issy yeah. does a very good job of, you know, making a kind of subtle reference to that. But then there's a painting in the show that we're going to have opening on Sunday that makes sort of a reference to a. Um, a Corbet painting, The Sleepers, but it's it, it kind of just gestures at it and then it kind of moves along and, and does a lot more to it. And so I think it's nice to kind of have this dance with history. There's this thing about painters that I think if you wanted to ultimately separate painters from sculptures in a really simplistic way, mm. 
Painters have the burden of constantly repeating history and how are they going to constantly do that and how are they going to answer that question? And sculpture artists have the burden of constantly remaking a new object that's never been made before. And I think that's really the funny thing is that when you experience a sculpture, you wanna have this bodily experience. You want to, like something new and with painting, you wanna experience something you're familiar with. Interesting. We had an artist very on simplistic. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. But we had an artist on it saying that every time they made a brushstroke, they were like, "Well, that feels like Cy Twombly, or this feels like a Picasso line, or this feels like a Bazelitz line." And because they know the art history so well, in some ways, that's exciting. But in other ways, that's frustrating because you're always relating it to what's been before, and that you know, and what what Jamie is doing is, I think, really unique. Is that it? It's things that come before, but the forgotten things or her references are so obscure, mm -hmm. but then she makes it relevant and brings it out of obscurity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, that's exciting to me. I was always really interested in that idea that when you see art that you initially love, it's often because it's familiar. Um, so you've seen it before somewhere and your brain is like, oh, I like that because you feel safe with it or something. And then a or lot you of can the... relate it to art history for yourself. Yeah, exactly. And, you go, exactly. Oh, great, that's, and it I could be the art history done. that you know. Do you know what I mean? Like what you've grown up with or whatever. Yeah. And then often the artists that I don't like initially, I'm like, oh my God, this is terrible. Like three years later, I have almost acclimatize myself to it you've or had something. that with me a lot of and times I, I've, I, I bought work it, and he's not nice and then suddenly that. it changes my life yeah. and then that is the work that's the most important yeah. to me so it's actually the work that isn't familiar to me that then literally changes my life and but um, you've done that with me you've done that with objects like i've gone i'd like this rug and you're like oh that rug's disgusting don't get it and i buy it and you're like oh i like this rug and i'm like that's the rug i sent you a picture of it's not always really different in this space are you a water sign or i'm a scorpio i'm scorpio as well I am too, so this is are we all three scorpios that's, that's, here <laughs> Why oh, I love JTT. There is, a, there is a lot of steam <laughs> around Scorpios. this table. And Vanessa Carlos is also a Scorpio. Yes, oh. she's a really good friend. She's a really good friend in London. I love so Vanessa. What is that, what is, so what does that mean then to you that we're all Scorpios right now? Well, I don't know, but I've heard that and Scorpios that often are sign? friends with each other. And I know there's definitely a trait that I have that if someone sort of betrays me or messes me over, I just shut down and it's gone. I can't. Well, oh, I'm saying if I get pushed. To just, you know, I think one thing I learned is that there's so many things going on in your, you know, there's like your rising sign and everything so I think it, there's a lot of different components, but the Scorpio bit that I think about, I do think that Scorpios have a tendency to be able to change their mind and use that to the advantage of their own self-understanding uh -huh. like or their own processing. But this is not coming from any sort of expert place outside of my own intuition and my own water signness. Yeah, um, <laughs> The thing is, wow, so Scorpio is actually up. water signs. Yeah, I, I didn't mean, even know that. I sort of feel like it is. It's like the ability to kind of be like, oh, I really like this, and and it's not about um, that you don't have an ability to grasp. Like, I mean, Libras are really good at that too, of kind of going back and forth about what well, can balance, be, isn't it? It's the scales. Yeah. yeah, they can also like say what's really good and bad about things. Yeah, yeah something yeah. about my personality, which I don't know, is a Scorpio thing, but I, I've always felt like I want to know as much as I, when I love something, I want to know yeah. as much as I possibly can about it in a deep, deep, deep level, that's like kind of like fall for things. Yeah. yeah, and that's what I love about being a gallerist is that you get to have those meaningful, long-term, deep relationships with people, and then you get to, like you say, to know all these tiny nuances and all of that stuff. And then I love being able to, for example, at an art fair booth like translate that and all those tiny things and explain that to people mm. to bring the work alive somehow so it's not just about looking at it it is sort of about the depth of it all and where it's all come to from to articulate this history I love that though and I find it so like makes my life better you know do you, do you ever get overwhelmed by the details um and I'm just from like an administrative point shuffling in with all of the details of an artist because I obviously agree with you I kind of mentioned that earlier but I don't know if I do, actually. I think I, it's like some sort of weird, endless thing for me. I can just keep going and going and going. As long as I really love, love something and believe in somebody, I, yeah, I don't know. Can I think you sell I, art you don't like? Can you what? Sell art you don't like. Do no. You, you can't. I can't work. And that's part of the reason I never and if you went don't like to it, work it, for... But say you've got an artist you're not that keen on, do you have to find a route in so that you understand and do like it? But to be honest, the only reason I went to work for Carl was that I liked all of his roster. Yeah. And I was already... Some of the artists we don't even show now, but I was friends with a few artists on his roster already who I was just friends with, but I loved them as people. And then I began to love their work. And then I realised Carl's gallery, it was quite eccentric and quite strange in a way. It wasn't mm. like super commercial, cool no, gallery. No, no. And he wouldn't even talk to me on art fair booths and all this stuff. But I believed in what he was doing and saying. And then, I don't know, I, I can't work with people Do I don't believe in. Do you get overwhelmed in. then? Yeah, I'm like constantly overwhelmed, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, I think that 
not only is it because I can handle the content of art, obviously, that's something that I, I wish we could all make as much time in our lives for. Mm. I think it's just down to making sure that every little bit of it works every step of the way. And I think that when you have just, we've got, I've got a great staff, but it's just that when you're kind of a smaller team um, versus um, a larger team, some of that kind of, that just sort of happens, you know, and, and how much, I think about this a lot, like how much labor how like if you could take every gallery and divide up the labor in a sort of pie chart, how would because you know we do this a lot. We look at galleries and we think about their styles. We think about the artists they take on. We build these hierarchies, which I think can sometimes be really belittling to people that are building really amazing things. Mm. You know, so I try not to do that, but I do admit that sometimes I'm like, I wonder what the label, what the labor, excuse me, pie chart would be for this gallery. You know, how much are people able to really devote towards their artists? How much mm. are they devoting towards their um, clients. Yeah, and, yeah. And it's just, I think everybody has a different take on all of that. And I tend to be a little bit, um, you know, maybe a little controlling sometimes on mm. some details and things like that. And I, I think about that a lot. And, and I was thinking a lot recently about how I seem to work every single day of the week. And that I think I've always been like that since I was a young kid. Like, I, I like to be... Work is I like more fun to, than fun for you. Work is more... We got told that once by Stephen Fry. Well, yeah. when you work, you make money. And when you just... You know, I'm just yeah. joking. You can spend a lot of money working too. How far ahead do you plan your roster for your shows? About two years. Right, yeah. so you know for the next two years what's coming up. Mm -hmm. I and mean, how soon do you, ahead of the show, do you announce them? Only about a, a show ahead, do we? Because I think it's important to leave a little flexibility for the yes. artist. A lot of things change and shuffle around. Yeah. And um, so that's the only reason why. And how do you, uh, you've got a hot artist and everybody wants to work. How do you delegate that? What is that system for you? It's really tricky. I think um, only certain artists have, um, well, I mean, I think it's always really tricky just trying to figure out both career building for artists. Like what, how, how are you as a small, how am I as a small gallery going to keep my artists? I think that's the number one, you know, keep them happy, keep that, they're my clients too. And I think that for a young artist who's doing very well, they have a lot of options. And you have to kind of remind them, I can, I have to kind of remind them that I can punch above my weight. I can place things in museums and I can, you know, place things with board members. And that is important to artists. Um, but there's this tricky thing because you're also working with clients that have been very supportive of you and you want to show loyalty to them too. And you have to do this dance where, it, you know, no dealer is going to want to be t turning away money and I think, or turning away relationships, but you just have to kind of try and do right by the artist. And that's mm. always a really hard thing. I, I've always felt the best way to deal with things like that is just to be totally honest with each person. So like with the collector, if you can't give them a work because you're trying to prioritize for a museum or something, you have to really explain that's why, you know, because some people I feel like don't tell you what, as you know, from being on different sides as a collector, they don't tell you why you can't have the work. Mm -hmm. And it used to really upset me. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you go to a museum a few years later and you see that work in the museum. And I was like, if I'd known that was meant to be going yeah. to the museum, I would have been fine. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I always try just to be as transparent as possible. But that must be the protocol for all galleries. It's museum first surely yeah yeah and or or trustees or promised gifts and there's a little bit of a nuance and you have that. that a lot in america yeah we, exactly yeah and also it's very tricky because sometimes you have to sell to somebody who who has a relationship to a museum they might not be publicly a board member or something and maybe it's not going to go through now but you're thinking really long term like you know that two years from now this is going to lead to this yes mm. and so it's tricky when you go to somebody and you say i'm going to prioritize a museum or a trustee which i do try to say but sometimes you are actually there's like a very very intricate puzzle that you're trying to just make work and so it's hard to explain the nuances of how you're making those decisions. I also sometimes think it's not um, as black and white as kind of writing it down on a page and yeah. then you follow the rules. Yeah. It's very much instinct. And yeah. I think the longer you are a dealer or a gallerist, it's like you it all becomes part of a kind of natural flow or something. Right. And I try to use my instincts and my gut and uh, yeah, I think you just try, it kind of develops. And that's also what I love. It's like a skill in itself, that. Yeah. The balancing act of managing the whole thing. It's like... I also try to remind both myself, the artists and the collectors that we're all, like I have a lot of really great, amazing young collectors. And it's yeah. like, we're all very young. We've got a lot of time <laughs> ahead of us. There's not, there's only so many, um, you know, committed collectors and in, in, there's a lot on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's like, there's a lot of the same people that we've known for a really long time. Mm. So I just try to have some patience with it because at the end of the day, it's like, 
you know, things just play And also, out. at the end of the day, we're all trying to do the same thing, which yeah. is support new ideas, support new yeah. artists, and help the creation of all of that right. and to facilitate that. Yeah. And I think that's also what collectors have to realise is sometimes, because um, you have to sort of let your own ego and your own, like, desires to take a, a seat, uh, you know, a backseat in order to support that artist <laughs> to grow, though. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, of course. And that's also what your passion should be be as a collector say yeah. is to support them and that's not always going to be you owning the actual work and you can also support an artist by talking to them and turning up at their openings and you know following them around the world and all instagramming those them hashtagging them yeah or yeah, exactly or doing a podcast yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> i do think that just to speak about the american problem in particular that something does eventually have to change with the way that money is used to like there is a problem where the very wealthy um, do have access to things just because of their extreme wealth and power. And that's something that is in America because the institutions are relying on that. And it's kind of a bummer because that's why we have certain kinds of controversies where people are really looking at how money is made. And it's really hard to kind of have those conversations. And I think it's kind of a bummer. And I think if there was a little bit more of um, a different way that institutions were acquiring works, yeah. that pressure wouldn't be put on the galleries as much and this is like a really a governmental so issue what, what, not an institutional what, what issue what are the other alternatives then for them to acquire works there aren't any it's not like the government gives but what do you think though what do you think they could be well i don't really know like the solution and i'm not the expert but i just think that it doesn't make sense for individuals to be the ones that even if the money is going through the institutions through a board fee or if it's going in directly it just gives a certain power to individuals that I feel like is unfair to people that are really devoted to artists that just don't have that same kind of um, resource power. and wealth and yeah. power. And yeah. it does put artists in a tricky spot where all of a sudden I think there are these movements where it's like, okay, how are you, who are you accepting money from and why? And yeah. I don't think the artist should be put in that position. No. Um, and I think it's kind of a bummer and, you know. In a way, I think people need to talk more about this do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you need to almost have panels where people all come together and from different parts of the art world and right. or, you know, all the different museums and all that all need to come together and almost have a symposium about it or something right. to try and, because yeah. out of that you will get, I don't know, because new, if there new was, approaches. If there was more of a way in which there was, I mean, I don't think that it's necessarily healthy for all of culture to be supported by the government, but it's just that if there was a little bit more of it, I think that there wouldn't be so much pressure for galleries to try and find this calculating way for and i mean you know i don't know interesting so we ask every guest that comes on the podcast yep. to very high pressure oh so dramatic hard. so hard sharp journalistic questions yeah uh one is uh if you could do an art heist and take home any artwork you would like from a museum or a gallery or anything or a home um what would that artwork be and um, it could be anything we can like bring you a truck and cranes and anything to help you take it home I should have. I should have known that these are the questions. Yeah. I have listened <laughs> no, to a lot of podcasts, but I feel like I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I don't know the name of it, okay. but there is this amazing James Turrell that I got to see in yeah. Ireland. In is it um, in a chapel? It's not in a chapel. It's um, just in the countryside in this like private um, space that has like all these sort of ancient underground. Um, like ancient crypts or something like this, yeah. Is that it? The Sky Garden. Yes. James Terrell Sky, Sky Garden. Garden. Wow. You'd Where have to that? dig it up. You'd have to get me a plot of land. This is a it's good art. <laughs> this is a good art. Yeah. You'd have to buy me some property. Do it done. done. No, but this done, is why done, you done. shouldn't be prepared to know the question because that is a genius answer. So the Irish Sky Garden is a giant earth and stone crater embedded into the landscape of the Lissard estate gardens yeah there's not they're not crypts they're actually ancient monuments they're like ancient underground monuments are wow. also right like burial there. ground something like that yeah and, and it that's says, a permanent thing. i guess that is technically a crypt it said well it yeah. says in the center of the crater's bowl is a large stone vault yeah. purchase or oh, plinth yeah. not unlike an egyptian sarcophagus yeah that's where the visitor should lie back and look at the sky oh wow so the sky so his light that he's created is this natural crater. sky and you lie down at yeah the bottom. and you can cool. hear like every bee buzz it's crazy wow it's really amazing when did you see that i went on a trip with my girlfriend to ireland last summer and she like planned the whole thing you have to make a whole arrangement 
I want to have a partner that takes me. I to know. Art. I'm going to ask you something. <laughs> so you identify as lesbian, queer, LGBT? Queer is probably more accurate. Because I'm wearing these cargo shorts, right? <laughs> and I've been. Someone messaged me on Instagram and said, You're cute, but okay. you dress like a lesbian. I'm going to go what ahead and describe about? these cargo shorts for our viewers here. They're tighter than more cargo shorts. Also, Russell Tovey has chosen to. Do a little fold on the bottom of the cargo Tiny short. That's an interesting move. I, In all of you. my years of looking at cargo shorts, I've never seen some so narrow, thank and you. I've never seen one with a little roll up. I Do you think these are narrow? Definitely call but that I gay. I, just got big I would call that gay. gay. <laughs> <laughs> I found the person who wrote that. I was I like, why are you? Like, um, how can you say If I were to wear those shorts, yeah. I would probably go for a slightly wider leg. Really? But, you know, that's just me. See, in the UK, these are quite like builder chic. Do you know what I mean? I could wear these and they're, they're like quite... Yeah, like... Uh, they look really great on you, Thank first you of so all. Much. I mean, Russell, I just think it's a Russell bit... is HOT hot. Oh, we all stop. know that. But I would say this is, you know, like, it's a, just a different thing in America. It's like, you know, uh, like, Borna always wears cargo shorts. Right. So, gay. Great. Gay. So, I look okay. gay. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine with me. The second question we always ask everyone is um, what's your favorite color? When I was younger, I really identified as indigo just because I was like, you know, I'm not like a blue person. I'm not a violet person. I'm indigo. And just to prove the point, yeah. I painted my room indigo. Wow. That yeah. was intense. Yeah. And what was, was it really like devoted. when you woke up in the morning and saw indigo around Well, you? I did a horrible job, like where the wall meets the ceiling. There was just spots everywhere of like indigo meeting the ceiling because I was, you know, it's like 12. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just mostly stared at that and it bothered me for like a good four or five years. <laughs> I loved <laughs> so when fun. You know when you're a kid and you, it's, it's really interesting, I think as part of your development as your own identity and stuff like that and almost like control away from your parental influence if you had parents as you're growing up, whatever. But like I used to feel very strongly about the color of my bedroom yeah. and um i wanted it yellow I did when yellow. i was really really young i was very like strong it's just come back to me now but i wanted to have a yellow room mm. and then later when i got to about 12 i wanted to have clouds and my mum was so cool and she helped me find wallpaper that was clouds and i ended up putting like, like wall cloud story. wallpaper all around I don't know what that says about I me. used to want all them neon stick-on stars on the ceiling. I had Did those you? too. I had those too. I didn't yeah. ever do it. But and when my room was yellow. But I used to move my room around. My mum would be downstairs and she'd hear me kind of going, with the furniture and I'd move the well, shelves, the bed, something. She'd come up and be like, you've moved your room around again. I'd nothing's like, yeah. changed there, Russ. You're still doing it now. I'm always moving stuff Every time constantly. I go to his house, he has moved the whole place around. And he's just done a shoot for Architectural Digest of his apartment. And literally, like, the next day, it doesn't look like it anymore. So actually, no one's even going to know, know what's I'm in I'm really his... like, oh, I wish it had been like this when they were shooting it. Yeah, but the funny <laughs> thing is so people are going to look at that and be like, oh, I know what Russell's got in his house. You don't. Because it doesn't <laughs> even look like that now. It's completely transformed. And he has so much art that he could, like, literally rehang the whole house. It's like. Un unreal who are your art heroes oh okay um i'm trying to think of like a time in my life where there would be like which art hero would be in particular times in my life oh this is kind of hard i love that though i love that idea that at different well, points in your life you can have different artists that like help you along your way right so in a deeply personal level but i mean it has to be carol bovet because mm. not only on a personal level but like the way that she by the way that she operates as um, sort of like a small business owner and the way that she operates as like an incredibly talented artist, um, she's just influenced me so, so much. Um, and her art has influenced me a lot. And, just, and you remember seeing it from a young age? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was kind of, she also helped me so much. She helped me get my first job at Macaron. Oh, right. oh, wow. She's a Zwerner artist, right? Yeah, Good yeah, yeah. Yeah, Zwerner. Um, so I'm just really, I feel very indebted to her and I feel like I, she was one of the, like around 2007 when I first started working at Macro, I just was very dedicated to being somebody who was at the front desk and I really wanted to know everything about an artist in case somebody had a question, <laughs> which is just so That's funny. Fantastic. So I just, I she that. was one, somebody that at that, at least the work of hers up until that point, I felt very much like I could talk about it. Mm. Um, and, you know, the amazing thing about her work is that I think you can talk about it from a lot of different angles and aspects. And that's what she's so, you know, so, so and she deals so much with history. Mm. And so she has all these like little um, rabbit holes that you could just really go down with it. References what is a John makes. Chamberlain lineage? Do you right. See yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but the time back in 2007, there was a lot of things that she was looking at that dealt with just 
really like the way that modernism looked and functioned in the 60s and 70s and the way that subcultures just like it kind of opened my mind into a lot of different ways of thinking about history mm. that I hadn't thought about before mm. well enough mm. um you know you could also say that she's really influenced by Bruce Connor and that those you know that there's just a lot that um that there's there mm. um and how great for you in your personal development to have someone like Carol Bove like support you as well yeah, and help wow. you. I think men almost like mentoring people or just even helping people that are enthusiastic, you know, because you can spot them. I I've re recently met a young, um, I think he's like a gallery assistant or gallery manager at a London gallery, and he is so awesome. And he came to the opening of my new gallery in Margate the other day and was with his boyfriend, and I just think he's brilliant. And I I really want to be supportive of him because I think I can see a bit of myself when I was younger in, in him almost. Oh. And I think it's so nice to like support younger people and realize that they might end up being the future gallery owners like mm. yourself because mm. you ended up having your own gallery and like helping other artists. And it is a really important thing to remember the more successful you get to like still support, you know, right. people coming up. Enthusiasm. Yeah. And, um, Andrea Rosen's also very, very oh, good at amazing. that. She's just so devoted to supporting ideas and she's, she cares so much about like ideas. And I, it's just so amazing to see somebody who's so successful still kind of keep it down to the baseline, most important thing, which is art and ideas. So. Great. Well, she's Felix Gonzalez Torres's major like, influ um, major supporter, major mm -hmm. gallerist, right? Mm -hmm. And his, uh, his work is, it's there, but it's ideas, isn't it? Mm -hmm. She's also done great stuff for Wolfgang and all kinds of people. Yeah, she's yeah, an amazing yeah. woman. I mean, incredible. Well, on that note, new ideas, that's a great place for us to tie up the interview. Jasmine, Sue, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you guys I'm for so having me. happy we got to New York to spend this hour with you. It's been seriously fascinating. Um, and I feel like I'm even closer to you now. Like, I, I loved it. Well, it's Thank a dealer, you. dealer talking to a dealer. It is, yeah. yeah Although I don't like being a dealer, out. don't forget. <laughs> three Scorpios. I like, I like being a gallerist. Three Scorpios chatting yeah, shit about art. We should actually call this podcast Three yeah. Scorpios. We should, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Three Scorpios. We're just three Scorpios hanging out, chatting about art. Is that enough? Question for, mark. For everyone, <laughs> <laughs> for everyone listening, you can see images of all the artworks we've spoken about on our Instagram, at TalkArt. What is your Instagram handle? Uh, JTT underscore NYC like that amazing and um what's your website is it jtt jttnyc.com i know yes, it would have been cooler to get jtt.nyc but it was too late so we just oh. no i think it's great so we will be back very what soon what does the t stand for the middle t. My middle name yeah which is Jinlan. how do you spell that t-s-e-n-l-a-n-g but it could also be like z-h-e-n-l-a-n i don't i'm not pronouncing it right to any of our Chinese listeners. So. We're about to <laughs> we're about to jump on a plane back to the UK. Yeah, we've had an amazing few days in New York. Yeah, thanks to everyone we've been hanging out with, yeah, thank and you. Um, we'll be back soon. Big love. Thanks for listening. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Recorded at Spiritland London by Anthony Shaw and edited by Gareth Isles. Subscribe to Talk Art on iTunes and Spotify. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com